welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined by my friend Stephen Fairchild for a conversation on Krzysztof Kisłowski. This is the first in a trilogy about his Colors trilogy, Blue, White and Red, that came out in 1993 and 1994 and earned him remarkable plaudits nominations and prizes in all the big festivals in Europe and of course at the Oscars that announced some strange new vision. These are not the kinds of movies you would have expected to earn so much success and he is a Polish director rather than from one of the more established or modernized countries and nevertheless this seemed to be maybe not a breakthrough in cinema but certainly something new that everybody thought was very interesting. The man had a reputation to begin with but this made him into an acknowledged master and at the same time signaled his retirement which is perhaps stranger still he is therefore a very unusual man and we will talk about his background but for now let us just say that it's the 25th anniversary of the completion of the trilogy in 1994 and we will show that this is a very timely investigation into what we mean by our modern enlightenment ideals and how we have to deal with the world around us and at the same time that the great reputation of Kislovsky has not led to a deep understanding of his work. And this is what we're here to contribute. If you have seen the movies, you will uh, love to see them again. And if you have not, you will discover something with which to fall in love. And at the same time, to follow along the thread of a very sophisticated investigation put in cinematic form. Stephen, thanks a lot for joining me. I read your essay in the current issue of Modern Age and I was impressed both because it is so thoroughgoing movie after movie through plots and characters and the major symbols he deals with and for the dealing with the great themes that are dramatized in a way that they are almost invisible unless you pay attention and you follow his guidance through repetitions and similarities and differences Mm -hmm. as to what we should be paying attention to. So thanks a lot. This is a wonderful essay. Thanks for joining me. And please introduce yourself to our audience. Well, thank you, Titus. I I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here and a privilege as well. My name is Stephen Fairchild. I am an independent scholar and a writer, formerly a high school teacher. Yeah, now I'm just working on some scholarship and writing. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We've been talking about movies for years now, and in fact, I owe you the effort of thinking through Kislovsky and also the reward of reading this wonderful essay and of conversation that we now get to share with our audience. It's a remarkable achievement that seems all the more remarkable for the fact that Kislovsky was strangely short-lived. He died in his mid-50s, and at that point he had only been making movies as we think about art cinema for maybe 15 years. He was primarily mm-hmm. a documentarian and, of course, mostly stuck behind the Iron Curtain, away from Western audiences, although he had gotten some attention in the 80s. So first of all, please introduce us to the man, Krzysztof Kislovsky. Yeah, he spent most of his career in the 60s and 70s working on documentaries, primarily about life in communist Poland. While he wasn't by any means a partisan, anti-communist or otherwise, most of his early documentary oeuvre was political, very concerned with the barriers that separated the ruling class from the ordinary Poles, exploring and showing life as it was lived, as distinguished from how it was portrayed in in propaganda. That's an aspect of totalitarian regimes we can't forget was so crucial in structuring their lives. 
he spent a good deal of his artistic energies to show real life, particularly with regard to this separation between the public and the private. But interestingly and importantly, I would say, he became uncomfortable with the documentary format because of dealing directly with the lives of real human beings, invading their privacy, and especially in the communist regime with the danger that he was putting some of his subjects in by documenting their lives and revealing their private activities to state scrutiny in a way that could provide evidence against them. So it was partially this concern that led him to fiction in, in the 80s. And starting with the Decalogue in the late 80s, he moved away from overtly political themes altogether and developed what would become this almost metaphysical style that you alluded to in, in the beginning when you were talking about the repetitions and, and the motifs that he employs throughout his films. This is something that would come into full flower with the Decalogue and culminate in the Three Colors trilogy. Yeah, Kislovsky was educated in the School of Film in Lodz, and he went from that into documentary work and therefore brought up this question, are documentaries neutral or is reality politically and morally neutral? As the greatest writers on totalitarianism, Solzhenitsyn and Václav Havel pointed out, you cannot live by lies, and the terrible power of even small lies adds up until it crushes people morally. And so the documentary is either going to be a form of propaganda or a form of truth-telling, and therefore it cannot be politically neutral. But because it is not politically neutral, then it brings up the question of how should human beings be dealt with. Storytelling, like it or not, constitutes holes. It shows us characters and their situations and purports to reveal something about those characters and the situations in which they find themselves. The choices that they make reveal character, Aristotle says in the Poetics. And that cannot avoid judgments about what's good and what's bad, about what's just and what's unjust, about what's noble and what's base. This seems to have been a great preparation, therefore, mm -hmm. for filmmaking that takes as its aim, revealing the truth about the situation and the people that find themselves in it. This is another form of realism than that of the documentary, since it now deals with fictions rather than facts, but it is also liberated from all sorts of constraints and from all sorts of dangers. You end up with other kinds of dangers. You cannot deny the reality of a documentary, whereas in a work of fiction you can always dismiss that it says anything true, strangely enough. And perhaps an even stranger transition is moving from stories about life under communism, life under an ideological totalitarian tyranny, to the modern world, the world of freedom, the world after communism, for which he had no experience or preparation. The three colors deal with France and Poland and also with Switzerland. And these are not places of which he had much experience, of course, except Poland. And nevertheless, he is very confident in what he has to say about these places and the characters that fit there. And that announces, therefore, some grand project. That is to say, an attempt to speak to Europeans about Europe in a coherent way, strictly on the authority of storytelling or cinema, whatever authority that may turn out to be, since he cannot speak from experience or from the office of some authority or reputation. And that makes this a very daring, but at the same time, strangely discreet claim to tell the truth. It lacks anything by way of bombast or anticipation. But before we can get to the things on Kislovsky's mind, please take us through the plot of Bleu, the opening of the trilogy. Yes, good. 
The first film in the trilogy is Bleu, the color blue. Each film corresponds to one of the colors of the French flag and also one of the three Enlightenment or French revolutionary ideals, liberty, equality, and fraternity. There's certainly there's a degree of overlap in, in every film, but first film, Blue, will take and treat liberty thematically. So that's something we always have to keep in mind when we see occurrences of the color blue, which are throughout. We want to be asking ourselves what this says about liberty. The story takes place in the wake of a car accident. The family of perhaps the greatest composer in, in Europe, they're traveling somewhere, perhaps from Paris to their country home. And there's an accident. The composer dies, his daughter dies, and the wife, Julie, played by Juliette Pinoche, survives. So the rest of the story is about her response to losing her husband and her daughter. She wakes up in the hospital, contemplates killing herself very briefly, but she can't go through with it. While she's still in the hospital, she views the public funeral of her husband and daughter on a fancy little portable television, which a colleague of her husband, Olivier, brings to her. Olivier, it turns out, is in love with her. While she's still in the hospital, she gets a visit from a reporter uh, who's interested in this concert for the unification of Europe, which her husband had been working on. Importantly, for the project of Three Colors, the Concert for the Unification of Europe is celebrating the advent of the European Union, the beginning of the end of history, we might say. So in the wake of the death of her family, Julie wants to be totally freed of all memories of her past, everything that could remind her of the pain of losing her family. And so she has her house and all her possessions sold, moves into a private apartment in the city. There, she forms an, an unlikely friendship with this stripper and sex worker named Lucille, who's not very popular in the apartment complex she lives in. The people there do not appreciate her looseness, and they try to get her evicted through a petition. Everyone in the apartment complex signs besides Julie. Julie doesn't want to have anything to do with what they're trying to do. She wants to mind her own business and is not interested in shaming Lucille. Eventually, Julie and Olivier will cross paths again. He seeks her out. She's not very happy about this because he's a reminder of her past. But she's not able to totally free herself from attachments because she's made this friend in Lucille. And one night... She gets a phone call from Lucille to come to the sex club where she works for kind of moral support. Julie finds out that this is because her father just came in, and Lucille was very shocked by this. While Julie is at the sex club comforting Lucille, something appears on the television on the other side of the club, a TV show in which the reporter that we mentioned at the beginning is interviewing Olivier, the protege of Patrice, who's in love with Julie. He's going to be working on finishing this concert for the Invocation of Europe. And it also reveals, sort of inadvertently, that Patrice had a mistress. They show all these private pictures. So the combination of these two things compels Julie to leave her complacent solitude. She ends up seeking out the mistress. It's not clear at first whether she'll want to take revenge on her. It ends up that she doesn't. The mistress ends up being pregnant with Patrice's son. Julie decides to give the mistress and Patrice's son the country manor that she had put up for sale at the beginning. 
At the same time, she enters into a romantic relationship with Olivier and agrees at his urging, ends up completing the concert for the unification of Europe as the person who knows Patrice's intentions the best. And that is where the movie ends. Yeah, so we have two very different things put together in a story. One of them is this character, Julie, and her personal tragedy. The other thing is the reunification of Europe and the modern world in which Europe can be reunified. And it's not at all obvious that these things should go together. Whatever the connection is, is not obvious. They are connected by chance. This will turn out to be very important for Kislovsky. Mm -hmm. The argument embedded is that chance reveals the limits of things, of Julie's opinion about happiness and the life she should live. Chance interrupts the concert for the reunification of Europe, if not the reunification itself. Chance reveals that our technological machinery is not perfect, though we suppose it to be so. Chance therefore sets up a competition to the modern world described by the European Union and technology, and this seems to be what gives Kislovsky his opening. His story proceeds by interrupting, at the very least, the reunification of Europe. Mm-hmm. Now, this reunification in some way continues, and Europe will become one thing whole, whereas in the Cold War it had been separated by the conflict between America and the Soviet Union. But the character of that whole is in question. Had it worked on automatic, as we expect technology to do, this would not have come up. Right. It didn't, and so it does. And so then also for the human beings in the story, the problem of chance comes up and how they deal with it turns out to reveal character. Now, this unique power ascribed to chance by Kislovsky, its importance in storytelling would seem to follow directly from the fact that our modern science, natural and political, both together in the case of Europe, this science is supposed to conquer chance. Therefore, Kislovsky puts into question all of modernity. Not to say that Mm -hmm. he's an enemy of it in any important sense, but he certainly puts it into question so he cannot be a partisan. So that would seem to be the relevance of the beginning of the movie where breaking fluid leaks. We see the people in the car don't. A car crash. People die. It was an accident that it happened. It was a car accident. And it was an accident that it hit the tree in the middle of a road. Although Mm -hmm. maybe the guy just didn't know how to deal with the crisis and steered for the tree by instinct since it's a target. This happens more than people think. When once you're not in control by process, you have to make decisions. And those decisions might turn out to be deadly. Yeah, I was just going to add, if you see the movies or if you read my essay, you'll notice this. The very first image of the movie is a rapidly rotating wheel. The wheel of the car is going to end up crashing. So we know from the very beginning that technology is on Kieslowski's mind and that to a certain extent, everything that follows is going to be somehow related to the situation of modernity in which technology plays such a huge part. Yeah, the car has to work. All of these things work. And that's what we mean by freedom. The basic sense of we get what we want. We do what we want to do. For us to do things, all our technologies have to work. And perhaps for us to even want to do things, they must be reliable. And Mm -hmm. that means at the same time that we don't notice them, which is the point of the accident. You can't notice all these things. Stuff will happen that you think is reliable, but then it turns out it's not. It's a surprise. And this then tells us something further about how the storytelling works. Why should the movie about freedom be about abandonment and loneliness? 
abandonment will turn out to be the form in which the stories are told, but its first form is that of loneliness. Julie is left without her family. Her first instinct is to commit suicide. Now, why would that be? It's not how well-adjusted adults in the modern world are supposed to behave. This mm-hmm. is what primitive people might do, who in the grip of passion cannot control themselves. The terrible character of the situation becomes a terrible pain they cannot bear. The inside and the outside, so to speak, collapse. And yet this modern woman behaves in the exact same way. But she can't swallow the pills and somebody interrupts her in the hospital and silently she gives up this suicide attempt. Now, that suicide implies something about the character of freedom. That is to say that some lives are not worth living. To say the least, Julie is not a Christian who is afraid of going to hell for committing suicide. Indeed, there is almost nothing to even suggest Christianity in the story. Freedom would seem to mean freedom from religious constraints, including, and freedom from the opinion that life as such is good. Technological life is good. The life that we have now is worthwhile, and it's not clear that any other would be. And so all of a sudden, freedom turns out to be constrained by all these powers of the world around us. And this would seem to be why Julie, after she decides not to kill herself, as Walker Percy says, she becomes an ex-suicide. Yeah. She knows that it's in her power to do so, but doesn't want to. Nevertheless, she wants to get rid of all these contrivances of the modern world. She wants to get rid of the life she chose for herself, as we would say, freely chose to marry an aristocrat composer to help him in his work, to have a family with him, and all these other things. She throws it all away and indeed wants to destroy much of it. She keeps one thing alone from her past, which is this lamp with blue crystals that she had hung as an amusement over her daughter's bed. She cannot give up being a mother, apparently. Yeah, it also, what you're saying, points to the way in which she seems to stand in both for the modern state and the modern individual. After this tragedy happens, first thing she does is she goes home. It's a lavish country estate. It has gothic windows. We hear gunshots. Hunting is happening in the background. It's evidently the site of aristocratic activities, and she wants to be done with it all. She wants it all sold and converted into money and an account which will help to pay for the servants whom she doesn't want to leave in the lurch as well as the rest home for her mother and these are things that the modern democratic leveling of aristocracy with the advent of the modern state helps to make possible and it's what modern individualism as Tocqueville described is about false sense of autonomy and self-sufficiency the sense that one can be free of all one's attachments You're right, she liquidates an estate, as indeed the modern state must. She wants to reduce things to payments, as the welfare state does, to avoid connections with actual human beings. She goes and visits her old mother, who is an amnesiac in a rest home, and obviously had not been part of her life before. And the funniest thing, heartbreaking as the mother is to watch, she watches TV and has no memory of her life almost, or certainly not of recent decades. The daughter wants to imitate her. She wants to become an amnesiac. Mm -hmm. That would seem to be a new version of freedom that she's choosing now to get rid of all her memories and all the people who are connected with them. And you would think this is not what people would choose, especially not seeing this shocking example of a human being that has been crippled when it comes to mind and to an extent perception and memory. 
Yeah. But nevertheless, this is described as, as you put it, Tocqueville's individualism, the disease of the heart that makes it impossible for people to look beyond their narrow concerns. And this would seem to be why Julie is so interesting. She was part of the most important things. Her husband gets a funeral of state, it would seem public ceremony from which she's excluded since she's in the hospital convalescing. Mm -hmm. That's a very strange thing to have your family turned into a public act and removed from you. But she doesn't seem to experience it as a mutilation. Loneliness may be more natural, she might think. She doesn't go to their graves. All of that has to be left behind. And so the first half of the movie is about a gradual abandonment and the second half of the movie about a gradual resumption of duties. And her character would seem to be more or less the same in both cases. Part of the seriousness of Kislovsky's cinema is that it reveals character, but it does not develop, as people say today. Mm. Julie is who she is. She's an adult. She's not going to change who she is. She does not have the kind of experience that might change her. And that by itself is interesting. Freedom would seem to mean freedom to be who Julie is. But if life experiences can change her, how free is she really? Her preference to throw away the facts of her life in order to keep herself would seem to indicate that. She would rather give up everything than give herself up. That would be an insistence on who she is and on deciding for herself. She wants to turn the tragedy that took her husband and child and make it into a choice by choosing to throw away everything connected to them. That would seem to be the full moral assumption of modern individualism. She would be the prototypical citizen of this new European Union that's got to be built on a certain kind of amnesia given all the divisions and tragedies of the past. Yeah, you said earlier there's no sign of religion. I think there's one small sign, and this connects with what you're saying now. There's the cross that she wears that her husband gave her and that ends up coming off during the crash. And that this boy who's around in the countryside when she crashes ends up finding and trying to return to her, but she won't take it. She wants him to have it and wants to leave that behind. So I think that's Kieslowski's way of, again, of saying what modern individualism in the modern state tries to do with religion as well. Yeah, it's remarkable that an accident that has the character of an accident reveals all of these things that would seem to be built in or necessary. The more Julie represents something that we can recognize in the world around us, the less is it plausible that individual freedom or individual choice counts that much. The less inscrutable her actions are, the less can they really be an act of individual will. So it's difficult even as storytelling to preserve her individuality when it's possible to reduce her to a symbol. Mm -hmm. but on the other hand, you have to reveal the extent to which what she's doing is what many other people would do. Now, what sets her apart from us is that she's an incredibly willful woman throughout the movie, but especially in the first half, she moves quickly, she has a fairly dour face, she does not grieve, she does not expose herself to the pity of anyone, and therefore, down to her physical gestures, she tries to claim she is herself by herself, that loneliness reveals who she is and she's fine with that. The problem here turns out to be twofold, that on the one hand, she's not willing to give up her marriage to her husband as first appears she might. 
when we see on TV that his concert for the reunification will in fact be completed by his protege, she becomes interested and active even though she's angry, indignant, domineering as before, willful. But that admits a claim that she hadn't admitted before. She cannot be fully alone. Then when she falls in love at the end, that admits a further claim. And so she has to deal with this other man, Olivier, who seems like a fairly weak man because he's in Mm. love with her. She's not in love with anybody, so she's strong. The lover is a slave to the whims of the beloved. He chases after her, he puts up with her, he is unwilling to make claims for himself, except that he baits her to come out of her concealment by revealing what he knew and she didn't, the mistress of her husband, and that the concert will be completed. And he also refuses to have the kind of partnership with her that she wants, which is what she had with her husband. She helped him with his music, but she didn't take any credit for it. There are rumors that maybe it was her writing it and not him. Crazy assumption, but in a way, you know, isn't modernity about revealing that these great composers are actually not real? Mm-hmm. The woman behind every man and so forth. But indeed, something does have to change. The new composer is not great like the old composer. He wants equality with her. Either she will take the fame for being part of the writing or she should not contribute music at all. And in that way, Olivier admits both that he is inferior to the previous composer and lover, Patrice, but also that he has to stand on his dignity as an equal, at least. So that would be the form of the new Europe. And so there is a version of the modern man that is dignified. And that would seem to require three things to happen simultaneously. One of them is that he has to know greatness in his mentor. The other one is that he has to know love and the tribulations of love, the humiliations that come with it and the difficulty of getting anybody to take you seriously enough, as we used to say, you know, for better and for worse and so on until death do you part. And the third thing, you have to be somehow part of this new political project. The concert will be played. Europeans love symbol. It seems to be that there's only symbol to Europe. And so the concert is to be played only once in these 12 cities that were reunited once the Iron Curtain fell. Why would those cities be special? It's obvious that it's not done for the sake of those people in those cities. This would be telecast and it would be a big affair in the whole of Europe. That's the the funniest thing about all these things. Nothing can be a symbol if it is merely a symbol. But with these things, they are merely symbols. Except that the music is quite impressive. And what makes that so important is that the music for the concert is heartbreaking. The concert for the reunification of Europe seems to be mostly about the sufferings of Europe. It has none of the uplift of, say, the hymn of the European Union, which is, of course, Beethoven's Ode to Joy, the setting of an ode by Schiller, which is ridiculous. Uh, Just go and read the lyrics. It's hilarious, especially, of course, after the 20th century. But the music here does seem full of this awareness of the suffering that is the fate of man, which is the opposite of enlightenment. Blue is the color of the sky and of the sea. Julie likes to go swimming, not least to hide her tears. Blue is the aristocratic color. That understanding of freedom would seem to require some kind of triumph. And there's no such thing left. Whatever triumph there is for Europe, there's none for Europeans. Whatever reunification comes to Europe does nothing for anybody's life in particular. The Paris we see in reunified Europe is just what it had been a bit before. It's a very banal place where nothing of great importance happens.
what we see of life there is, as you said, about uh, Lucille. Freedom also means, as you point out in your essay, that her father can go to a strip joint and see her there, or at least she see him, and all of a sudden be shocked. She's okay with herself right up until that point. That sends mm-hmm. her into an existential crisis because it turns out she had based her freedom on amnesia too. Yeah. And that would seem to require a severing of social relationships, which is not necessarily tenable. An accident, again, leads to a crisis. But a system where accidents can cause crisis is not as solid as it seems, of course. Right. But Kislovsky does show there's some room for hope if you take the nobility of this suffering seriously. And that is that there is a chorus for the concert for the reunification of Europe, but mm-hmm. it is not the Schiller and Beethoven vaguely atheistic Greek mythological fantasy. It comes from the Apostle Paul. Yeah, it's from um, the letter to the Corinthians. And I think Kislowski said that even though this is from the Bible, he thought it was a universal message. And I think that's true, but I think it is also noteworthy that it is taken from the Bible as one of the foundations of modern Europe. And it's about love, agape. I'll read the chorus here. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanking cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It would seem that this is required for the project of new Europe if it is to retain its claims on behalf of individuality. Individual human beings are going to be stuck in their situations where they will have to deal with accidents and therefore lead to crisis. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Julie, she, as you said, seems to understand that love as giving the aristocratic estate to the mistress of her late husband and legitimating the bastard in the process since her own family is gone and one of her first actions is to revert from the aristocratic name of her husband to her own maiden name, she does restore the family in some way. Her husband did have this mistress who is pregnant and that turns out to be a bit of a miracle. This is her chance to be generous, to behave like a human being of a recognizably biblical stamp. And this would seem to be Kislovsky's addition to the circumstances. It's the most implausible thing in the entire movie, that is to say. And therefore, the action of the movie, I think, has to be understood as pointing to that event. In what situation would this be possible? And Kislovsky's point seems to be that just as the gradual resumption of her moral duties in the second half climaxes in this, the abandonment of those duties and the horror of the beginning is necessary. Without that terror, the relief that comes at the end through this act of love and in the beautiful music of the chorus wouldn't work. And that would seem to be something that poetry understands that technology doesn't understand quite as well. There is a connection between terror and relief in that if we have not faced up to what it is that really sends us scared even in the ar- into the arms of technology, Right? The technology that might lead to good cars might also lead to car catastrophes. And there's also the technology that leads to a hospital where your life might be saved, but also the technology that gives you the things with which you might commit suicide. 
Yeah. There is something shocking in the ambivalence morally of technology. And in its strict, it would seem indifference to our being as human beings. Technology would seem to refer to mind strictly as though there were no bodies in this world, whereas the whole movie seems to be about these bodies and what it is that makes us human. Yeah, and I think it's supported by what we see when she visits her mother in the rest home who, of course, is probably only alive and experiencing amnesia because of modern medicine, is watching the television. The mother comments, you can see the whole world on the television. The little part of the world that she happens to be watching at that moment is a show about elderly people bungee jumping from helicopters. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite bizarre. I mean, there- You see on TV stuff that you yourself can't do. It's a replacement for experience and experience of the most extreme kind that seems to defy gravity and defy the normal limits of human life, which is what technology does as it distances us from our experiences. Yeah, bungee jumping is a great example of pleasure we take in relief from terror that it itself provokes that we seek in the first place. <laughs> and technology emerges in that way too as relief from a catastrophe that it itself provoked. But that relief turns out to be incomplete since it quickly sends this woman trying to commit suicide. Yeah. And so the question there is, what would it take for Julie not to commit suicide? And that would seem to be the answer at the end. And that would seem to be some kind of hope for Europe as well on this other level of the story that deals with the reunification of Europe. And the implicit question whether this would be amnesia or whether the music would have to preserve the experience of suffering in as much as that is at all possible, and therefore hallow or ennoble the quest for liberty as an overcoming of obstacles and the testimony to suffering suffered and brought to some good end. Yeah, and it's a question whether we will end up learning that lesson or whether it will take, as it seems to be, and this is why I think revisiting this trilogy at this moment is so important. We're seeing a revolt against the abstraction of administration, bureaucracies that treat democratic citizens almost technologically. And what we're seeing now is, I think in large part, a revolt against what the European Union has become. Perhaps the movie can offer some guidance as to how we might go forward, whether anyone will listen to it, I think is, is much more doubtful. Yeah. It's not at all obvious that poets have much chance to influence anybody. But, you know, there is the attempt, as you put it, technology abstracts from who we are to mind, to a rational account that is embodied best in technologies and political technologies, that is to say, institutions with their bureaucratic procedures. If those things should fail to satisfy, then we will have something akin to tragedy as we see in the trilogy. So freedom ends up being split into, on the one hand, mind without body at the level of the European Union or the project of enlightenment, the end of history. And on the other hand, body, it would seem without mind. Julie does not explain herself. You would expect some kind of poetic account where she says what she thinks about what's happened to her and what she wishes to do and why. This is not there. The story has a specific character. There is a tragedy in the beginning, and our protagonist in reaction to that tragedy concocts the plot. But the plot depends only in part on her actions. For the plot to resolve, she needs these other two characters, at least her new lover, Olivier, and her husband's mistress, pregnant with his child. 
that's a very interesting schema since it takes one couple and turns it into two couples by the destruction of the husband, the great composer. A kind of plurality is revealed by his disappearance since he was what held them together. He was mentor to one husband to another and indeed a lover to his mistress. Uh, he's an aristocratic composer. He's literally a thing of the past. Yeah. But there's a question about what will come of this now that that's done. And it seems like there are these three different possibilities that came together in his rather secretive life. And now they have to somehow deal with life in his absence. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you will have to somehow make the claim that these are not mere bodies, like a body that science saved through its bodiless mind, but that Julie has a soul. And that would seem to be what the story has to reconstitute. Now, characterization in a story can give you character. What choices does she make which reveal what? What things does she avoid which reveals what? But that wholeness is formal. You can say what kind of person uh, Julie is. Now, the scientific account can save her life and it could tell you how things work so that you can recognize them. Whereas in this other case, the poetic account would never help you with recognizing any of these things. What it helps you with is to understand the experience of the person going through it. Why does grief take the form that it does for Julie? You can understand her if you understand her grief and the other way around, but not in absence. Mm -hmm. But if you were to try to put together this formal account of her character and on the other hand, the mechanical account that science could give of her life, then you would have to add something else. That is the place occupied by the epistle of the apostle and the acts of love. That would have to be the purpose, that is to say, that brings together the mechanical powers we get from technology and on the other hand, the form, what it means to be free, that is to be to be the individuals, that is to be able each of us to say about anybody there he is. That's the person that he is. I recognize him as exactly that is which he is. That would be soul. But it has to be tied into purpose. And it would seem that that is why it's necessary to connect a character to the project of European unification. Yeah. And so this is the problem we are indeed dealing with now. Is there any purpose that could at all put together, on the one hand, the power we get from technology, and on the other hand, our need to understand our individuality as souls? One might say that on some level, that's what Kieslowski does in his art. It's a very technological art form, but at the same time, it's put in the, in the service of understanding our individuality and giving us moral stories. Indeed. So there is an education that is required for the reunification of Europe, and he aims as his last project to supply it. It would seem strange, perhaps, that somebody from the disinherited, poor, miserable part of Europe should claim a kind of precedence over France, the pride of Europe and the pride of enlightenment. But there it is. Yeah. Well, Steve, I think that's about it for our conversation of Bleu. Thank you very much for joining me. And let's get on to the question of equality with the centerpiece of the trilogy, White. Perfect. Thank you so much. All the best. You too.